Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 3rd, 2019. The My President Went to North Korea and All I Got Was This Lousy T-Shirt Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., where just 24 or 29 hours from now, there will be tanks, there will be flyovers, stealth bombers, there will be a political rally from the Lincoln Memorial, all celebrating Independence Day. Congratulations. Happy birthday, America. Joining me from New Haven is Emily Bazelon of Yale and the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello. 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 Emily is wearing athleisure wear for the GabFest today. All right. Enough. <laughs> I got made fun of for my tank top. Emily looks like. by a sweater. I am. Looks like she's come from again. SoulCycle. I don't even know if Emily goes to SoulCycle. But I haven't. I don't even. I've never been to SoulCycle. Um, you should go because you're really dressed for it. <laughs> Uh, and then I don't know what he's wearing because I cannot see him because we're not video chatting. John Dickerson of CBS is 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello. I'm overdressed uh, as always. I cannot imagine you in athleisure wear unless they be tennis whites. I can see you in tennis whites. Um, yeah. I, I think. I mean, John works out. I work out, but it doesn't. He knows uh, how to wear sports clothes. Yeah, but. but uh, but anyway, I think we're I think we're fine. John, I feel like John works out in that kind of you know. Do you remember *Chariots of Fire*, where they do the hurdles ah! and their glasses of champagne on the hurdles, and they're wearing a bow tie <laughs> as they as they run? That's how I imagine John working out. Yes, I think that's fine. I, I work out like people in a Surat painting. <laughs> Pointillatedly. <laughs> yes, pointillistically. The on today's show, the aftermath of last week's Democratic debates. Who knew that busing was going to be the hot topic in 2019 Democratic politics? Then the president's bizarre trip to North Korea. And then what on earth is going on at Customs and Border Patrol? There's a racist, disturbing Facebook group. There's appalling conditions at facilities that they're managing. There's awful treatment of members of Congress who are coming to tour those facilities. Is this an agency that needs to be brought to heel? Then we will have cocktail chatter and a reminder, dear ones, that we have a live show next week in Canada on July 10th, Wednesday, July 10th. We'll be at Kerner Hall at the Telecenter for Performance and Learning in Toronto for our first international show, our first show outside the, the safety of the United States. We will be in Canada and we will have a great Canadian guest, Jesse Brown, publisher and host of Canada Land, is going to join us for that live show in Toronto. So please come see us. Come see us with Jesse Brown, where we'll, we'll, we'll finally solve the terrible North-South disputes that have plagued America for these past 250 years. So join us. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. A week after the first Democratic debates, which unfolded over two nights like a kind of overpowered royal rumble we are still talking about busing in the 1970s, a most unlikely subject. And we have polling that has moved strongly towards Kamala Harris's favor, towards her direction, and away from Joe Biden towards Elizabeth Warren. John, what a week after is the import of those debates? Oh, golly, 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 golly. Well, I think it's a so much, so much. Like, well, so one thing is it's a focusing event. Everybody sits down, takes a look at the candidates, draws conclusions, has debates. It's it's uh, um, if the winnowing of of the of the candidates um, takes place in these focusing moments, and you know, obviously, the big focusing moments are where people focus and actually cast a ballot. But so this was the first big focusing moment, and so a lot of people saw some of these candidates uh, for um, the first time, and those who. Uh, I think one thing we know is that those who um, kind of decided to make the moment be about confrontation, Castro and Harris, uh, did well. Their approval numbers went up. Their, um, and then, you know, so approval numbers are separate and apart from where they are in the horse race. But people were introduced to them and had an Im- uh, uh, improved impression of them. Those candidates who kind of didn't show, which is different from taking an uh, aggressive posture, O'Rourke would be one of them um, uh, or the one that comes most quickly to mind, didn't grab the opportunity to be part of the conversation. We also saw that the race has some fluidity. And then I think with Warren, one thing that I had said two weeks ago or last week or something is that even if you're not – 
because I think we're, there are seasons to people's evaluations of these candidates. And so I don't think while Harris and Castro help themselves by taking aggressive postures, it doesn't mean that's the only route to success. It might be for somebody who's way, way, way in the distance. But I think for Warren, who was just in her debate, which was the one in which she wasn't surrounded by people who were higher in the in the tiers, she was just Elizabeth Warren in full. And that you know, that's that's what a lot of these can't that's that's usually the best you can do. And so I think she didn't necessarily wasn't hurt particularly by not taking uh, the aggressive route. Emily, going to the Harris Biden kerfuffle, which was the big story that came out of the second debate, the big story that came out of both debates. Why did that catch fire? I, 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 I asked I asked that because I was away. And so I heard about this all secondhand and then listened to it and watched it. Uh, after the fact. And I just didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get why it was such a big deal. Yeah, I think two reasons. This was a personal, heartfelt moment from Kamala Harris. It kind of cut through a lot of the more canned ways of talking about issues in politics. It was the freshest, sort of most vivid moment I've seen from Harris in my three years of watching her uh, since I wrote about her when she was running for Senate. She has tended to recycle a lot of points that she makes and told a very small number of selected stories from her own you know, past, her own biography. And this felt kind of new and surprising. and But I think the real reason it took off was that Joe Biden just completely fumbled this moment, which seems surprising. It seemed like he should have been prepared to be attacked generally and specifically to have to answer for the comments he'd made about these segregationist senators and, and even busing as an issue. And he just seemed flummoxed in the moment. Like, I was talking to this really smart former Democratic Obama official, and he was saying, look, like, you could have scripted the response for this from Biden. Biden could have said, your story is so inspiring. I've been struggling with these issues for 40 years. Here's my record on civil rights. Like, turned it into a moment of kind of empathy and taken some of the sting out of Harris's attack. And instead, he got super defensive and then started answering, cut himself off. Oh, and then in the middle, he made this weird point of, I wasn't opposed to busing around the country. I was just opposed to the Department of Education doing it, meaning the federal Department of Education, meaning basically like states and local communities have to decide this for themselves. And that is a state's rights argument we've been hearing since Brown versus Board of Education. It partly explains why school integration has largely failed across the country. And if you don't have some more coordinated push from federal courts or federal authorities, usually it just kind of sputters out. I mean, look, this is complicated, and we should talk more about the history of school integration and busing and why that's happened. But in that moment, it felt like Biden was just overmatched. And so then I think, at least for some Democratic voters, you're thinking, okay, well, who do I want to be up in a debate Mm -hmm. against Donald Trump, this guy or Kamala Harris, who has just been very forceful and successful in getting her point across? The um, I think that all makes good sense. The um, you know when you choose one of these moments as Kamala Harris expertly did, and think of all the things that this. I mean, this really was. I can't think of a debate moment that was as clearly orchestrated and as expertly pulled off as this. Because there's a lot going on. There's the sending the signal, as you said, Emily, uh, about uh, you know part of one of the things people are evaluating the candidates on is can they go toe to toe with with President Trump. That's one of them. The second is to um, is to make an attack that is powerful, puts the opponent in the box, but doesn't seem uh, nasty. Axios did a word cloud of what people remember from the two debates. And it's basically the word Kamala and the word Harris are gargantuan, and then everything else is very small. <laughs> the second one is, is so Joe. It doesn't really matter. So, it's just her name. Exactly. So, I mean, she really pulled it off well. And it's not just about stupid politics. It is about stupid politics, but it's also about something else, which is being a leader. The first thing you have to do before you're a leader is take power, right? That's the first job. And that's what this was. Is she saw a moment and she said, I'm going to go affirmatively grab power. So it does tell us something about her capacity to do that. Now the question is, can she do it again? Can she do it in an instance where she doesn't have that amazing, compelling personal story and the picture to release on social media right afterwards? 
And then to your uh, point, Emily, about Biden, it 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 hit him where he, he has one of his greatest liabilities, which is he looked he looked and seemed old. Now, is it important for a president to be able to disarm a powerful attack like that in the nanosecond? People can make that conclusion. Secondly, what is exactly Harris saying about Biden today? Um, I, I agree with you, Emily. The response that your uh, the person you talked to had was really would have been the great. Uh, would have been the great response. But what do you guys think that Kamala Harris is saying about Joe Biden today and his capacity to ameliorate the inequities in the American uh, in American life uh, and his um, strength of commitment to civil rights? Um, what is she saying exactly today about him? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, Biden, because he was Obama's vice president, has credibility. He he did champion later civil rights measures. I think that Biden's problem right now is a Democratic primary problem in the way that he talks about his own record. And the fondness of his descriptions of Senators Eastland and Talmadge, you know, these uh, blue dog Democrats from the South who he worked with, there's something jarring about it. It's not like, yes, of course, you have to make deals with people you don't like. Fine. But he didn't distance himself sufficiently, I think, from their odiousness, or at least like the way it seems now that they are odious. And so I think Harris had an opening and she took it. That said, like we are it is so the federal government is not going to bring back school busing as a means towards school integration right now. You know, when you're really thinking about the, you know, terrible state of school segregation across the country because it is rising, it was a problem we never solved. You know, we talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago with Nicole Hannah-Jones. It's this incredibly thorny problem. It it comes down to a combination, I would say, of racism and housing segregation, which, of course, are also joined to each other. But they also involve issues of class. It's really complicated. And so... I don't think that Harris's pro-busing position, which she clarified after the debate, is especially popular. But in the context of the Democratic primary field, she seemed like the person who was being forward-thinking, who was reflective about the past in a way that was more gave more recognition to the problems of racism that Biden seemed to be kind of glossing over a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the well. I thought I think again, not having seen the debates because I was away, but and and having absorbed this all at a remove. But most people absorb it the way well, you do, right? Because yeah. they yeah. see the clip the next morning on TV. They're not sitting okay. through the whole. All right. Thing. So I, anyway, I just wanted to caveat it because you guys come armed and I come unarmed to this fight. Um, is that the the issues that seem to be discussed have been discussed? Busing as one. Another, you know, from what I understand, that health insurance for undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. Uh, as another one that got a lot of play, like I, it didn't feel to me like this is this is the territory on which the Democrats really want to be have having this uh, campaign fought over. That they 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 really need yes. to. They, it makes sense. I understand why this comes up in primary debates and why this would questioners would push on this, but it doesn't. It does not. Um, if I if I were if I were a Democratic Party strategist, I would try to sort of nudge things more towards more towards uh, fixing the healthcare markets generally for Americans. So that's one point. The other point is just I think I think on the on the Biden, what is she saying about Biden? I don't know what she's saying about Biden, but I think what it, the takeaway from it again seems to be look at this really old guy sure. who is really inflexible, who's slow on his feet, and is this who we want? Not I don't think it comes with a huge amount of on policy matters, Joe Biden is going to be wrong, although he certainly has th th wrong things in his record. It's more like, I'm dynamic, I'm young, I'm a woman, I'm I'm fearless, and I'm uh, a woman of color. And this is a this guy is like it's time is his time has passed, I, and Bernie Sanders his time has passed, and that's that is it's a it's a message of feeling rather than policy to me. I think it's I think it could be both. Clearly. Some portion of this is to is to suggest, and Cory Booker has been has been working this uh, angle as well, that Biden, in a pinch, he just doesn't have the right sensibilities if you're a person of color. I think that's that's definitely implicit in this in this attack. Can I just say one quick thing about the the what was actually covered? I mean, what you say, David, and it's perfect that you didn't see the debate is because what happens in the way we cover these things is that we cover the flashpoint moments. And unfortunately, 
for the purposes of adjudicating ideas that are important to the uh, to the country, we and by we I mean in the television media, we don't pay attention to the fact that there was a lot of talk about health care, about single payer, about how you pay for it. Is there a transition to it? Um, will taxes go up? Will they go? Does that matter if you're not paying premiums and so forth? That was a lot of that discussed in the first debate with Elizabeth Warren, and one of the reasons I think she did well. Um, despite not having one of these flashpoint moments is, uh, A, she might have done well relative to the people she was on the stage against. Um, but B, she took a lot of her answers and did what you try to do if you're not going to do what Harris and Castro did, um, which is she drove everything back to her central point, which is there are in- incredible inequalities and inequities in the American uh, system. Most of those are uh, the result of the fact that the wealthy have been advantaged by the system and that they've kept power to keep the advantages flowing to them, and I'm going to break up those advantages and share prosperity more broadly. She kind of always came back to that. And so there were um, there were some of those those discussions, uh, but you're exactly right. I mean, the, the, the policy stuff that got through was busing and, and, uh, and health care for undocumented immigrants. Um, and then also, of course, there was a big debate, and this is where Castro had a, a very strong uh, moment about whether you decriminalize uh, those who come into the United States illegally. So I have a question. After the debates, there was hand-wringing by conservative commentators like Brett Stevens and David Brooks at the New York Times and others that the Democrats are leaving behind moderates and moderate positions, that there's this move to the left. It's going to alienate the middle of the country, and that's how Trump is going to win. And, you know, some of what you're talking about, both of you, like, goes to this point, right? I mean, once you highlight the clashes between people and you have this, you know, more extreme position that Castro was taking about the legality of crossing the border, or you have people raising their hands for Medicare for all in a totally flat way, which doesn't get at these questions, John, that were right, like the actual substance of the discussion Mm -hmm. about how you pay for it and what the timeline is. The headline is just like, who backed that and who didn't, right? Elizabeth Warren raised her hand. So did Harris. Then Harris said she'd misunderstood the question. Um, It does seem like all of that pushes to the left. And yet I always also feel like this is just what happens in the primary. Like you go after Democratic voters. The the party hashes it out. Lots of people aren't paying attention yet anyway. Why should they? We have so long to go. And then in the end, like people move back into the more center for the general election and the country makes a choice that is a more – I hope informed choice in the end. What? Do you, but do you guys think there is a big threat here? No, I, I mean, there's obviously a, to the Democrats. There's obviously a threat. I mean, if you ended up with Sanders as your nominee, uh, I mean, I think there's a there is a real chance you're going to alienate huge swaths of people. Um, but I think it's it really and yet only his applies. Numbers are down, yeah, it right? really only applies. I think, to, I think it maybe only applies to Sanders of wow. the of the realistic people, um, and. And no, I don't. I think the, this this is how it happens. I mean, all, if you think about all the errant nonsense that was said by Republicans in their debates in 2016, all the completely gross, outrageous things that they came out in favor of, didn't matter that much. You know, they still were able to 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 run a candidate who, you know, won the election and and took a, took a huge group of of previously centrist voters with him. Too much anxiety about that now is going to make. Democrats gun shy. It's going to give them, deprive them of the chance to figure out which of the policy issues that they're talking about really do resonate with people, which get people excited. It's going to deprive them of being the ones who are setting the policy agenda going forward. So I think like they should, they should let their freak flag fly uh, for now. And then, yeah, as it gets winnowed down, as, as we get to next year, a year from now, it will, we'll have a candidate who will figure out how to reach out to to the centrist voters they need. And and they should not be listening. Brett Stevens, God love him. Sure, he's super smart guy. David Brooks, God love him. But like that's not who the Democratic Party needs to They're listen to right now. They're not gettable anyway, those people. I think um, it seems to me that if you're a candidate, the most important thing you need to know is who you are and what you believe. Right. I want to close. I have two quick things I want to close with. First, uh, why, Emily, do you think we haven't shed some of these smaller candidates already. Why haven't some of them dropped out? And I'm looking at you, John Hickenlooper, announced a run for Senate instead. Senate, which it's be much more <laughs> valuable to have some of these people running for Senate than running for president. Why is it that, that we have 
all these people still in the race when it's clear if you just you know I, I know it's too early to say it's too it's still very you know someone could come out of nowhere but I no, think we can be pretty clear you know it's pretty clear that John Delaney or what I don't even know what that guy's name is I think it's John I think his name is John Delaney I don't know not sure is not going to be president he's not going to be the Democratic nominee so why don't they drop because the Democratic Party set the threshold for making this debate very low. And so everybody had an incentive to stay in and get all the publicity and name recognition benefit they can. There's still plenty of time to drop out. I think we should be asking this question by September, especially for people who could then make a good run for Senate. John, how much time do they need, though, the ones who could actually still get into a Senate race? Like, is that a pressure that John Hickenlooper should feel imminently or mm. does he have a while to let the string play out? I don't know. I don't think he wants to run for Senate. It's very hard to imagine for so. me to imagine a person who was a small business owner who has been a mayor and a governor and who's actually run stuff and get stuff done um, and has been and has gotten stuff <laughs> done to, to go to the Senate, Senate, to go to the Senate where, you know, where things don't get done. So I think that's hard for him. I think Hickenlooper actually is not. Uh, I mean, being a governor and having been a mayor in a crucial swing state is, you know, in other times in politics would have been. Basically like, oh, that guy's always going to be in the top tier because of the electoral input. Yeah, I don't get why he hasn't taken off more. And then also just, you know, me um, and my little interest in actually how the job is done versus how we campaign for it. If you want somebody who's had to make the kinds of hard choices and trade-offs and work in something that approximates what a presidency is like, it seems to me that mayors and governors should at least get a, an extra round. It doesn't mean that's the only thing that's necessary to get elected. But um, I, so I would put him later in the in the why are you still in the race question. I just remembered what this reminded me of. I was trying to remember why why I find the size of this race so disturbing. There's this famous experiment by this, this um, uh, I guess he's a behavioral economist named Barry Schwartz. And it oh, became yeah. the par paradox of choice. And it's the idea. So what they did is they show they set up a supermarket display. <laughs> there are twenty four kinds kinds of jam. Oh, is it jam? And then they yeah, I think it's jam. And then they do another one where there's just three kinds of jam. And if you have three kinds of jam, people are much happier, and they buy more. And the, when faced with an overwhelming number of choices, it makes people extremely anxious and alienated. And they don't like it, and they are very uncomfortable. And and I feel like we're in the paradox of choice moment of the Democratic presidential primary, and they need to get down to three to, you know, strawberry, raspberry, and grape, because otherwise it's going to just make us unsettled. So just just a, Does just a thought. Does anyone ever pick grape jam? There's over no grape jam, raspberry. is there? I don't think there is grape jam. Uh, grapes it's jelly. Jelly. Right? Yeah. Oh. So it'd have to be a different kind yeah. of jam. Strawberry, raspberry, okay. and Blueberry? Uh, what about when you... That's better. Yeah, that's actually a real But choice. what about when you're at the IHOP and you're Raspberry fishing too. those little tin things? Uh, there's a grape in that. There's definitely a grape there's in that. There's grape little, jelly. Little those are jelly, yeah. John. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. We're not talking oh, about jelly. Oh, you're jelly making a jelly jam. jam discussion. I thought she jam, was making yeah. a question. I thought she was just saying grape was not a, a, anything you would choose, not whether it was jam or jelly. Well, sorry. I think she was, but I think that, <laughs> that was my, but my setup was wrong. Slate Plus members, lucky you. Oh, you were so smart. You got a Slate Plus membership some point in the past and that means you get bonus segments on the gabfest and other slate podcasts today we're gonna in the wake of my my vacation i want us to talk about whether travel is evil uh go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to become a member today and uh get bonus segments on the gabfest other slate podcasts this episode of the gabfest is brought to you by aura frames are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, 
or has a great deal for Mother's Day, listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. When this president wanders abroad, weird things happen. Last week brought us a strange G20 summit in Japan with Ivanka Trump nosing into meetings everywhere, President Trump joking with Vladimir Putin about election meddling, and finally the the, the presidential toe tap into North Korea, which was a, it was like a man trying to check off a bucket list of having visited countries. Um, but he had a photo op with Kim Jong-un, his third such meeting with Kim Jong-un, the North Korean dictator, with nothing so far to show for it. And meanwhile, back in the other axis of the axis of evil, Iran breached the uranium limits set by the 2015 uh, nuclear agreement that, that President Trump abandoned. And there are now strong indications that the country is going to start enriching that uranium. Uh, the President Hassan Rouhani said that that they're going to start enriching it this this weekend um, and basically said, you know, President Trump gave up on this agreement. So this agreement isn't binding on us either. Emily, the president is obsessed with personal connection with with dictators in particular. He's not particularly interested in personal connection with with leaders of, say, our Democratic allies, but he loves meeting dictators. He loves connecting with them. What is the purpose of that? What is the purpose of that Kim Jong-un meeting? I mean, first of all, it's theater, right? It gets these huge headlines. There's a kind of awestruck note in the voices of commentators and news reporters. Like, he's in the DMZ. He's meeting with this sort of former untouchable autocrat. I feel like that is a lot of the possible point of this. And there's also some kind of short-term diplomatic payoff, whether or not we actually ever end up with a Trump administration agreement with North Korea. In the moment when they're all, you know, playing footsie with each other, like North Korea is not going to bomb us. And I don't think that Donald Trump is a person who thinks about medium to long-term consequences. So I feel like that is good enough. Like if you can just sort of careen from one media opportunity and big headline moment to the next, like that is a form of Trump diplomacy in itself. The way in which the North Korea situation kind of pings off of Iran seems like really tricky to me because it feels like one of the lessons Iran could draw, and maybe this is an obvious point, but North Korea in these years of buildup and um, you know, having tests and rhetorically threatening us, they seem to be getting a much bigger payoff than Iran, which signed this deal with the Obama administration in 2015, but has been just, you know, hit so hard by these economic sanctions. So I feel like there's this perverse incentive that Iran could be drawing from all this of like, yeah, let's build up our program, start saber rattling, and then that will be the thing that pushes the United States back to the bargaining table or to make some kind of concessions to us. Or it just allows the um, harder right in Iran a moment of saying, see, like making deals with these people doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's one of the things that I find so demoralizing about this is there doesn't appear to be any foreign policy. They took, I mean, it was noted, they took no Asia experts to these meetings in Asia or, or to their meeting in North Korea. They don't have expertise anymore. What they have is a president who who commits foreign policy uh, by, you know, by handshake um, or by photo op, I should say. And and so it is, it is you, you, Kareen is the right word that you use, Emily, because it doesn't, there's not a goal in mind. There's not an end point. There's not a process in mind. There's simply, there's simply moment to moment with immediate gratification. And one of the things that is so, again, to use this word demoralizing is the Republican Party for the last, you know, really in, since in post-World War II era has been a party of foreign policy. It's like it's had an incredibly strong foreign policy muscle. Think back to some of the great Senate leaders. Think back to Nixon, to the Reagan administration. I, you know, and I don't always had certainly didn't always agree with what the foreign policy pursued, but it, they, it was based on a, on a real strong set of theories about how the world worked and a, and a fairly disciplined approach about what we were going to do. And that the the idea that the Republican Party has a, essentially abandoned that muscle, has abandoned the the maintenance of that that idea and those that kind of integrity around around foreign policy ideas is very bad 
we basically don't have a Republican idea of foreign policy anymore. There isn't anything consistent in in the right. And that means that that there's a incoherence that has entered into what we're doing, which which could last a very long time. Or um, because because the the foreign policy people that you're talking about on the uh, from the conservative side participated in a kind of consensus foreign policy, even though obviously there were big splits. But you know the reason you could get Democrats to support the Iraq War was that there was a kind of accepted set of beliefs that everybody had bought into, left and right. And, you know, obviously there are, there are Democratic senators, giants, Fulbright, Stuart Symington of the foreign policy sphere as well. What's but but I think you're exactly exactly right, is that th- there's nothing more patient and 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 long term focused and out of the lights and not reality TV than diplomacy. It it's it's painful and painstaking and the stakes are super high. And I think that you know, on the other hand, it's fine if personal charisma and a little razzle-dazzle get, um, you know, North Korea to at least be at the table in a way that they weren't before. And it seems to me that it's obvious what was, I think, the realization that – and I'm I'm riffing a little here, but I think it's true, which was, you know – at the Pentagon, when George, when uh, sorry, when President Trump was saying fire and fury and all that, their view was basically we're going to have to find a way. North Korea is not going to give up their nukes. We're going to have to find a way to manage this relationship in much the same way um, as the U.S. kind of managed the the relationship with other countries that have had nuclear weapons and haven't just given them up because we've asked them not to. Pakistan and China and uh, and Russia, um, and so. Um, Essentially, the president is getting to that result. Um, I, don't, I mean, I just uh, – they still – the position is still denuclearization on the, from the U.S. policymakers. But I just don't – It just there just doesn't seem to be any evidence that that's going to happen. But if the president can, um, through his you know personal diplomacy, get somewhere that uh, leads to that managed result, then that seems to me that's fine. What was working – what happened before wasn't working. The difference in Iran is – Razzle-dazzle at the end on whether we're going to hit or not hit Iran is um, confusing to everybody, makes policymakers in in the Pentagon potentially upset. And you have Israel playing a role with respect to Iran that I don't think anybody plays with respect to North Korea. So that if Israel thinks the U.S. is not being tough enough on Iran – um, the way people might think the president is not being tough enough on North Korea, Israel can go act on its own. Nobody's going to go act on their own with respect to North Korea. Or another way to, to look at this is the president will feel more pressure from Israel with respect to Iran than he feels from South Korea with respect to the North or Japan with respect to the North. So I think that adds that in that sense, all this volatility from improvisational foreign policy is much more fraught with respect to Iran. Emily, what do you make of the fact that the president seems to actually, who who is such a bully in in public, but when in private with dictators, with adversaries, with people he's negotiating with, is is incredibly weak when he needs to stand up for American interests? I mean, I guess it it seems like there are these competing impulses, right? On the one hand, there's the entertainment value and attention of having these meetings. And then on the other hand, there's uh, an instinct against intervention, which seems to run pretty deep. I mean, calling back the Iran strike is an example of that. And and the general treatment of North Korea is another one. And in some ways, I guess, David, one response to what you were saying about the coherence of Republican, and I think John's right, like the sort of mainstream diplomatic foreign policy establishment is that there was too much intervening going on, much of it unsuccessful. Better to have Trump refusing to engage in that than to have John Bolton more powerful since he's the member of the Republican of the Trump administration who is at least one part, one edge of that more establishment view. I don't really know, though, where this is going to lead us, right? I mean, this is a time in the world where Iran and North Korea are these kind of outlier, threatening, somewhat rogue countries. 
we probably have an opportunity to kind of pull them in more to the like social compact among the League of Nations. That was what the 2015 deal was about. It seems like North Korea in some ways is interested in that. Really hard to say whether we're going to bear any fruit from the Trump administration or whether they'll come away empty-handed in terms of actual signed agreements. Meanwhile, China in terms of its economic might and Russia in terms of its cybersecurity threats loom really large and seem to be out there as these big unsolved issues. I guess you can say that maybe the, you know, discussion about tariffs and trade with China might go somewhere. So I just feel like it's this rudderless moment more than anything else. Just can I just just, just sorry. I have to I have to say one thing because I always have to say this. Iran and North Korea are not analogous. Iran is a you know, it has a not great government, but it is a more not or less great. Come on, it's, not, it's, it's a not, bad it has, government. It has not a, yeah, but it's it's government even by the standards of the region it's in. It's, it's like not that bad. It's not worse than the Saudi government. It's not worse than the government of, of Pakistan. Not, not significantly. You're defining De- certainly not worse down, than this. David. Certainly not. No, I John. Know, it's exactly. ridiculous. It's, it's like North Korea, North Korea and Iran are very, very, very different situations. But they, you don't have to elevate Iran we, to make we that We bucketed point. them to get – well, you kind of yeah. do. I mean Iran is a country which, which for most – most of the European nations maintain fairly normal diplomatic relations, trade relations with, and and uh, Iran's capacity to disrupt and and sow terror in the world exists, but they don't. It's not exercised all that much. And certainly, again, c- when you look at the damage that that countries are doing around the world and around the region, I don't. I think it's not even close between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Not even close. Saudi Arabia is a much worse actor on the world stage. But we just don't we choose not to think of them that way because they're our friends. And I and I and North Korea is a, is a, is an outlier country in every respect. Iran is a country with a not great leadership that we have made an enemy of and we don't want to have as because we've picked a side in a regional civil war essentially. But Iran is not a fundamentally fucked up country the way North Korea is. Um, except that there's that's, a, that's my view. Uh, except that, of course, I would say that Saudi Arabia is also messed. Yeah, up. Yeah, you can. Anyway, you, Saudi Arabia can be even more messed up than Iran, but it does make it does make Iran uh, a picnic. Also, Iran. I wouldn't want to be a political dissident in either of those places. Yeah. and also well, by the or way, in, the, or in China, or in Russia, or in you know, seventy five other countries I could name. When we put Iran in a bucket. Like as a as a country that is anathema, a country that is outside the the order of the world. I think it's 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 just not fair. It's like either oh. either group them, either put put all those other countries in with them, or you know, or you're being a hypocrite about it. Well, I think the reason they're in the bucket is because Iran and North Korea represent the two uh, similar threats with respect to nuclear material that the U.S. is dealing with right now. So that they get lumped together for that way and the ways in which the – You know, I don't even think that's true. Like Pakistan is a much bigger nuclear threat than than Iran is. Not in the same way. But But Iran is a decade away minimum from a nuclear weapon and is heavily monitored. Saudi Arabia is a nuclear well, I don't threat think it's, too, by, by I that standard. It, I mean, it's like... Well, it's, hold on. I, hold on. Just let me... First of all, now that Iran has made its decision to enrich uranium, I think one of the estimates I read is by the end of the summer, they could have enough material. Then the question is, can they get it on a, on a warhead? So I don't think it's 10 years away. But secondly, when, when we're having a conversation about U.S. policy... They're enriching to 20%, to, not to 95%. When we have anyway, a discussion ahead. about U.S. response to nuclear powers these two naturally come together. The the U.S. president isn't doing anything with respect to Pakistan. So it's obviously uh, reasonable to talk about these two things at the same time. So that's not not crazy just as a matter of sorting things into different buckets. Also, Iran happens to be supplying North Korea with missile technology to get their nuke up in the air. So there's also that that combination uh, of things happening here. But but there's – the bigger point is the one that Emily – um, I think it is making, which is that the very first point that you made, David, about the kind of disordered, crazy, improvisational foreign policy that has no theme, you really need a theme for Russia and China because these are big uh, and particularly on cyber where there are no normal rules. And so you shut down you know, the electrical grid or the ability to transfer money. 
and you have a catastrophic attack on the United States. That's the, that can do much more harm uh, at the at, like that could happen tomorrow as opposed to what's happening in North Korea or in Iran. And that requires patient, long, silent, hard work. And there's a lot of evidence just from the churn in the administration, people not staying in their jobs long enough to be able to handle these things. There's a lot of evidence that that longer term uh, stuff is not getting the attention it d- deserves. And that and that's what will really matter. Um, Especially with regards to our election security, which worries me so much. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Emily, CBP, what is going on? Oh, man. I mean, the conditions at these detention facilities at the borders are – it's so hard to look at and read about and think that this is all being done by our country in our name. What's happening is that these are facilities that were supposed to be holding adults for a few hours and instead are holding people of all ages for days and even weeks. And they're just completely unequipped to do it. And the conditions there sound so inhumane. In some cases, they honestly sound like they're verging on torture. And the Customs and Border Patrol, you know, on the one hand, like they're the ones stuck in this position of carrying out the Trump administration's policies. And that is a terrible position to be in. And yet, you know, there's also evidence from this secret Facebook group that got outed this week that this is having either that the some of the people in the CBP are inclined to have these racist, you know, kind of animalistic views of the people they're charged with processing or whatever you want to say. Or also there's a possibility that like these terrible conditions are making people numb. In in other words, that they have to then distance themselves emotionally in order to be able to keep doing their jobs. Either way, it is awful. There's also a story about a number of suicides and kind of mental health problems and PTSD in CBP. And that all seems like it could be of a piece, right? That these jobs are becoming, they're just taking an enormous emotional toll on human beings. And some of those people are hardened and viewing immigrants in this terrible in, uh, you know, kind of not fully human light. And some of them, again, like are being kind of driven into this. I don't really know where the bottom line is with that, but it just feels like this terrible sin that we're committing day to day. Yeah, right. It's a, it is such a terrible sin. And it and when you commit a sin, even if you're not the if you're not the, the primary agent of it, even if you're a cog in that, you become implicated. It smears you. It wears off on you. It, it burdens you. And I don't think it's surprising to find that this this secret Facebook group exists and that the people are dehumanizing the people they're supposed to take care of. I think it it is it you become stained when you participate in a crime. You become stained. You bear that that moral burden. And I, it to me it 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 raises this interesting question, which is is would it be good? Would it be a positive good to name and shame? The CBP officers who are involved, not necessarily, obviously the ones who are in the Facebook group who are saying these disgusting things, I think they should be named and shamed for sure. But the, the ones who are simply going about doing their job every day, but their job involves fundamentally mistreating people who are innocent, who are not that they, you know, not that they are necessarily entitled to live in the United States, but they are not criminals. They are human beings who, and often children who deserve to be loved and nurtured and and given, you know, a safe, clean space to live because we're a rich country that can do that. And and should we therefore name, shame, dox the mid-level people who are who are carrying out these orders? Or is that, you know, is that beyond the pale? To name and shame them is beyond the pale? Yeah, is it? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I it seems it... to me like I I think the Kristen Nielsen problem is not a hard one. I think Kristen Nielsen like I, I hope I would have the, the courage not to sit with her at the wedding that we're both invited to. I hope. I hope I would have that. 
Um, That's not a real wedding, by the way. It's not a real wedding. Yeah. (laughs) The hypothetical wedding. And no one ever invites me to weddings anymore. But I think, you know, what about these regular people? They're regular, ordinary Germans, as we used to call them. (laughs) Um, I don't don't know. I'm not a – I'm not a – I'm – um, that doesn't seem like it's going to get us anywhere other than a massive escalation of um, of madness. Uh, but I want to go back to the dehumanization part because I think you're I think you're really right about the the dehumanization first starts, of course, when the people the migrants who are coming across are called animals. And when Jeb Bush during the campaign tried to say these people come here for love and they're trying to just get a better life for their families, who's ridiculed, um, which is a beginning of that. And so the dehumanization takes part in many forms. Then when you have policy that says it's okay to separate parents from their children, there's a dehumanization in that, recognizing that usually the tradition is that we don't have U.S. policy land on the heads of children. And then when there's not enough, uh, when there doesn't seem to be any uh, blunt force of leadership saying, uh, while these people... Uh, may have to be processed and sent back to their countries of origin. While they are here, um, our custom is to treat them as guests. You can imagine other countries. Our law well, is to I give them humane conditions also. Right. But my point is that there are obviously those laws are still in place and these people are um, not treating them with respect to those laws. So clearly the laws themselves are not enough. And my point is that you um, leaders convey the the i mean the whole problem here is that the, what is being conveyed is they should be treated at the very minimum of the law <sighs> so um i don't know i don't know i don't know what you know um it's an amazing it's an amazing I mean, thing we're at here it feels to me like before we start doxing uh, mid-level CBP officials, we should be thinking about the leadership here, right? I mean, there's an acting director for the CBP. We, you know, have these directives or lack of directives coming down straight from President Trump. And maybe the lack of accountability there just feels like there's nothing we can do about it. But it just seems like that's the place to start. We haven't even really gotten to that point yet that right that it just yeah I don't, we're all despairing the, in there's our comments here. You know, one of the things that I come back to sometimes is there there's this drumbeat on the right about how there are certain institutions in American life that are totally taken over by liberals and liberal ideology and liberal values and they are you know higher education is totally owned and pervaded by by liberal intolerant liberal PC values and you know they, there's a point there it's like that when 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 institutions aren't diverse like they stop to rep they stop kind of being able to see everybody in the country they stop being able to to in, encompass the the broadness that is like the country and the world what they don't talk about on on the right nearly as much is the way this has happened with with institutions like police departments like the US military like i'm sure I imagine Customs and Border Patrol, where where you end up with like-mindedness, ideological like-mindedness, and that is damaging to those institutions in the same way it's damaging uh, for universities um, to be entirely occupied by by one one ideological group. And and I'm not sure what their remedy is. Like when you, you had a universal when you had universal conscription, the U.S. military was not this way because everyone served. But now that it's a volunteer force, the military is, is increasingly very conservative. And I, th- I do think that a lot of the, the law enforcement entities that are not the military are very, very conservative. And, and it makes ideological or makes partisan something that shouldn't be partisan, something that should be just about representing American law and American values. So it's a worrisome trend to me. I mean, I would set the military aside because, well, I think you might be right about military leadership and the sort of leadership class. I feel like a lot of people join the military because it's a way to get school paid for and, you know, vault up the um, social mobility scale. So that seems like has more complexity to it. I guess the underlying question we're asking here is, are there certain law enforcement agencies and jobs in the United States that have just become immoral to engage in? Like, can you be a moral person and work on the border for Customs and Border Patrol right now? 
And if not, like, what what do we do about that? That seems right. There's like the problem of the racist Facebook groups and posts, which have also been an issue for several police departments around the country. This uh, amazing study, it's called the Plainview Project, has outed a lot of these people as forcing police departments and in some cities, district attorney's offices to reckon with that culture. And it it's not a few bad apples, right? That's what the CBP Facebook group shows. That's what this Plainview study shows. So then the question is, okay, well, we see that. I mean, we can deal with those people individually. But what do we do about the idea that what looks so grim right now about the role of the CBP is it's hard to imagine that you could just do your government job every day and not feel implicated in some terrible sin. And that's just that's like a deeper question for all of us. It's hard for me to blame the individual people involved so much as like the setup, you know. And that's where – uh, you have both a policy choice being made here, but then also the disordered, chaotic um, disinterest in normal ways of doing things that's probably also a part of this. In other words, the pres- president keeps pres- saying, do more, do more, do more in a system. I mean, there's obviously the num- the inflows of people that are creating the problem, but then there's also the political pressure that is creating strains on the system. And that's where being disorderly and disorganized is also a part of this. There's obviously the central thing is a values question about how other human beings are treated. But there's also, we see it in everything from the census, sloppy census uh, question, which now looks like it's going forward without the citizenship question on it. But that if you don't believe in an orderly way of doing things, the the catastrophes that result from being disordered actually land on both people's heads, in this case the migrants, but also make people working for the government who believe that they have signed up to do a duty engage in, at the very least, disordered behavior, at the most this stain that David put so well. And so that's why the systems that are in place kind of matter because you you end up uh, – it ends up splashing up on lots and lots of people, not just the migrants. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are – having an end-of-the-day beer on a hot day, and you want a cold beer, because who doesn't these days? What are you going to be chattering about, Emily? The government announced this week that it would be printing the 2020 census forms without a question about citizenship. Huge victory for the litigators who challenged this question in federal court, uh, especially the New York Attorney General's office under Barbara Underwood and the ACLU. They were in the New York suit and then um, MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund, in a different case in Maryland. My So, like, if you care about the accuracy of the census, this is a really important victory. I am worried, though, that some of the damage may have been done here. There has been so much publicity about this citizenship question. And when I was writing about this issue earlier this year, the fears among people who are networked into groups of immigrants or themselves immigrants about answering the census accurately, they seem to be running deep and obviously heightened by the Trump administration with all of the anti-immigrant invective that comes from Trump and that's related to what we just talked about. So, you know, states are investing huge amounts of money, states like California and uh, New York and I think Texas with large immigrant populations because these states stand to lose so much government funding if there's a huge undercount. It's going to be really important to try to persuade people that it's safe to answer the census. And I just want to point out that we do have a federal law making it a crime to share census data, even inside the government without authorization. I know that that happened and uh, in the 1940s, and it was part of the terrible story of detention of Japanese Americans during World War II. But we do have these better protections in place now. And while no one can absolutely guarantee that something won't go awry with this data, the community harm of not filling out the census is a real harm. So anyway, it's just going to be really interesting and important to see how all of this plays out. We'll be coming to your door. The Gap Fest will be coming. All listeners should expect <laughs> one of us to be there. Um you're going to divide up the to country fill to, to fill out your census. And we, we're looking forward to door knocking you. So just send us your address and we'll be there soon. John, what is your chatter? Uh, my chatter is about a piece in the Post today by Ronald Schaefer, um, who's writing about the president's uh, amped up celebration for the 4th of July on, um, God. on the mall. And 
it goes through the various presidents and the way they celebrated, and it reminded me of some facts and it, and introduced me to um, in, introduced me to another one. The first is the one I knew, which is just kind of amazing, which is that. So John Adams and Jefferson died, second and third presidents, both died on the same day in 1826, and it was July 4th. Then James Monroe died on July 4th in 1831. So you have three of the first six presidents— Who was killing the ex-presidents of Europe. —dying on July 4th. Like, that's kind of—somebody would be able to tell me what the statistical chances of that um, actually happening um, would be. Uh, First the five, sorry— so that's amazing. So there's that. Then on July 4th, 1850, Zachary Taylor celebrated on the 4th of July. And apparently, I don't know, it was probably not this, but uh, the story goes that the cherries and the iced milk that he drank gave him cholera and he died on the 9th of July. Okay, so that's one thing we've got to work out in our work. But the other thing that is more perhaps relevant to and sets a bad precedent for um, the excessive uh, militaristic nature of – and the military parades have been a part of July 4th parades forever. But in 1845, President James K. Polk, whose wife Sarah, by the way, was the one to have Hail to the Chief played because her her husband was diminutive. And even though he'd been Speaker of the House, she worried that when he walked into the room, people wouldn't notice he's president. So she had them play Hail to the Chief so everybody would know that Polk was in his. Polk was the first to have fireworks at the White House itself. And this is what happened. 8,000 people were there to dis- witness this amazing display. But 12 of the rockets unfortunately, went into the crowd. And a man named James Knowles, and this is the way it was written at the time, Mr. James Knowles, a worthy and industrious citizen of Washington, D.C., was transfixed through the heart by one of these rockets and was instantly killed. And then a woman, Georgina Ferguson, was also hit and died the next day. He wasn't even one of the first four presidents. Um, Right, exactly. He died on July 4th anyway. Exactly. (laughs) uh, by the way, just that way of writing was transfixed through the heart is um... – anyway, oh my god, two people were killed by presidential fireworks at the White House. Like how did I not know that? That's the end of the chatter. Uh, that is amazing. My chatter is uh, – it's you know tedious. You go on vacation. You come back and you're like chattering about what you saw on vacation. So we went to Iceland last week and basically I just – want to chatter that Iceland is is an amazing country to visit. It is, it's, you know, 14 out of 10. Uh, it's the most beautiful place I've ever been by a mile. And in particular, if you do go to Iceland, which I, again, recommend that you do, go to the geothermal baths. They're all over the place. And they're a bunch that you'll be pushed to. There's the most famous place in Iceland is a place called the Blue Lagoon, which is this otherworldly color. And it's a, it's this crazy uh, geothermal bath in the middle of a lava field that's been turned into an elaborate spa. And it's a cool place, but really the sort of your your average run-of-the-mill city city uh, geothermal bath is fantastic. And it's a great aspect of culture, and we should be so lucky as to have that, where you could go down to your local hot spring and lounge around in your local hot spring. It's just heavenly. So my chatter is get get in, get to a geothermal hot spring near you. And of course, we have listener chatters. You guys continue to send us excellent chatters, works of culture, movies, songs, articles, uh, by tweeting to us at, at SlateGabFest and, and emailing us at gabfest at slate.com. And this week, because um, it's a personal interest of mine, I will cite something from Emily's own New York Times Magazine, Gail Fobbs, at Gail Fobbs, I, or Fobbs, I may be mispronouncing your name, probably am, cites, uh, points us to this jaw-dropping story called A Family Portrait, Brothers, Sisters, Strangers. And it's a photo essay by Eli Baden-Lazar, who talked to a New York Times colleague of Emily's, Susan Dominus, about um, being child of a a sperm donor. And Eli Baden-Lazar went out to meet and photograph uh, his half-siblings. And he met and found 32, 32 people who were also from the same sperm donor, uh, all around the country and various ages from, I think, four up into their early 20s. And they all share a father and they all share certain qualities. They all have a certain family resemblance. And it's a it's a beautiful and really interesting photo essay about how life can take you in different directions. And But you're still tied. And are, are these people really siblings? Are they not siblings? You know, is this person really their father? I wrote a book about this, so I'm, I'm very interested in it. But um, you 
who have not written a book about it or even read a book about it will like it even more because it's it's a great piece. The variety of quotes from the different siblings are so interesting, like their feelings about how and what degree they're related to each other. I loved the uh, multiplicity of it. Yeah. Ditto. That is our GabFest for today. The show is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer for Slate Audio. Alan Pang, Danielle Hewitt, Ryan McAvoy, the axis of good, not axis of evil, the tripartite engineers of life helped us out with the show this week, as they often do. You should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us. And please, if you're going to be in, near, within flying distance of Toronto next Wednesday, July 10th, please come join us for our show. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. We would love to see you there. It's going to be really fun. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, we will talk to you from Canada next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So uh, uh, in that kind of um, self-involved, narcissistic way, we're going to do a Slate Plus, which is inspired by vacation I just had and a conversation I had with my kids while on vacation. Um, so we went to Iceland, which is a, you have to fly to Iceland. You may not know that, but you do have to fly to Iceland. And we did tourism in Iceland where we drove our car a lot around Iceland. We went to a glacier and rode snowmobiles on the glacier. Uh, we took a boat in an iceberg lagoon, you know, sat in hotel rooms and apartments and consumed goods, often goods that had been probably been imported, coffee beans ground into coffee that had been imported from from God knows where to delight my tongue. Um, I kind of came away wondering if that tourism, all that carbon I've thrown in, all that effort I've made, all the driving, all the all the noxious gases that we've we've thrown out of in in the course of um, doing this tourism, is that worth it? Like, is it is it worth it for the a the joy? So it obviously brought us joy, and uh, that that's a value in the world. It's nice to have joy. It it allowed us to you know share wealth. Iceland's a pretty rich country, but it shared wealth. It distributed wealth because it took some of our wealth and gave it to other people who possibly needed it more. And we learned about the effects of climate change. We, we saw this glacier that is retreating very rapidly. And we learned about how, you know, how dramatically the, the climate in Iceland is changing and the landscape is changing because of it. But is it, you know, is it, is it a net good or net bad for the world? If we come away with a slightly elevated sense of the crisis that the world is in, does that justify the shit that we have just poured into the atmosphere to gratify our senses? I mean, the, the discouraging answer is like probably not. But realistically, I feel like what we all – what I want from this is some carbon footprint that I'm allowed to make every year that includes some travel. Except I think that just by virtue of being a middle-class American, I've so far exceeded it just by like living my normal life that I don't get to set foot in any airplane ever, even though that is something I've done a lot this year because of my book travel. How much of that activity would take place if you were not doing it, David? How much, in other words, the lights would stay on the hotels, the planes would fly, the coffee would continue? Well, that, to that was what my my that was the argument my ten year old tried to use on me. Well, it's not then. an argument; it's just and a question. I, the question, and I think the answer is that for a time it would all get done, and then if the demand dried up because there weren't people going to Iceland, but, they were the planes wouldn't fly, and so there'd be fewer planes flying. Right, and but what, people would lose their jobs, and and people would not have the pleasure of being in Iceland. So that's so my, a loss too. Yeah. So, well, my good question is, what your individual action? So, so your individual action is not going to change most of the stuff that you described, but your individual action is going to be changed by the experience you had, probably. Or I should say, you you, you have a heightened view. Not that you weren't already um, uh, strongly moved. Um, as listeners know, about uh, the, the state of our planet and the um, and total inability to take collective action to ameliorate the effects of climate change. So you're pretty you are pretty far down the road anyway. But now you're even further down the road, and you're likely to act on that in a way that might actually have more actual effect at the end of the day than your. Uh, removing yourself from those activities would have had an effect on all those activities taking place. Have I 
have I gotten to the end of that sentence? Maybe. I mean, that's that that's that's certainly the self-justifying answer. <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for. Also, not an uh, an answer that's easy to measure. Like, what is David supposed to go do now to kind of prove that? Well, it, I guess my point is... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a Slate Plus member today. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.